Greetings, welcome, so glad to be here. Next week, the professional preacher will be back. And this morning, we hope to have uh, some message from God's Word. If you want to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 37, this book of Psalms is perhaps the best loved book of the Old Testament, if you just ask anybody in the world. And it seems like it has remained that way a long time. I read that of the 280 some odd quotations from the Old Testament that are found in the New Testament, 116 of those are from the Psalms. So they like this book too. This particular Psalm grapples with a certain problem that touches every one of us. It's a problem that touches us more and more and grows as we mature and it remains with us throughout our lifetime. It's one of the major issues of our lives in every believer and really every person. It's an ongoing struggle, a daily and present reality that can lead us to harm. There's all sorts of problems in this life we face. There's health problems, there's trouble with our bodies, there's financial problems, money problems. There's relational problems, the, the, the worst, romantic problems or friendship, strained friendships. But there's also this nagging difficulty outside of ourselves that seems to, similarly to the other problems, have this strange power to undermine the very thing we want in life, to ruin our happiness, our peace of mind, and our joy. It's the natural tendency to become envious and angry at those who don't fear God, especially when they're excelling and doing swimmingly well in the health, the finances, and the relational issues. Um, in, in a sentence, this psalm grapples with the apparent inequality of human life and the apparent failure of God to reward his servants and punish his enemies. It's a very important subject because this natural tendency to a wrong reaction is really bad for you. It's a robber of your inheritance, of peace and joy that we're supposed to enjoy now in Jesus. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And we know that the Bible says we should be joyful. Philippians 4.4, for example, says rejoice in the Lord always. So Psalm 37 is, handles this difficulty in life. It's written as an acrostic poem, which uh, in this case, approximately every other line begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And maybe they wrote it like this to help aid in memorization or to indicate that the subject is thoroughly handled, maybe from A to Z. Or maybe it's such an important matter for the people of God to be settled in. So the Hebrew language that God chose to write the Psalms in at first employs various types of poetic styles. Uh, several are found in this Psalm, such as uh, parallelism, where there's a thought written twice, sort of back to back, in a little different way or with more emphasis or adding more information. And it's very likely God knows that this form of poetry, which survives translation, would benefit our understanding and comprehension. So the first example of one of these uh, poetic forms is right in verse one, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. So in the very first uh, line of the Psalm, we encounter an important 
instruction from God warning us not to fall into the tendency to do these two things. Now, just as an aside, whenever we encounter a prohibitive command in God's instruction in the Bible, it indicates something about, not so much about God, but about ourselves, about ourselves, that we are prone to do this very thing. God doesn't waste his instructions on his creatures. He doesn't you know, take the time and effort in the Bible to tell us not to do something that we have no proclivity to do, we have no desire to do. So restraint is necessary where there is temptation to do wrong and cause harm, and God loves us, so he gives us commands to keep. God instruct, instructs us in this circumstance not to react to successful wrongdoing with either anger or envy. So in verse 1, we're introduced to the word fret here, translated various ways. It comes from a Hebrew root that connotes heat or becoming inflamed. There's a lot of uh, synonyms in English of the word anger. I was tempted to read them all, but then our time would be up. So let me focus on a few that take this heated idea right from the original language. In today's language, do not fret. It could be translated, don't get hot under the collar, don't get steamed up, don't be inflamed, don't get fuming or nettled or vexed, or don't have heartburn over evil men. Why would someone get upset or angry over what other people do? Just live and let live. Well, it's obvious, uh, it's injustice. that they. It bothers us that they get away with it. It's not right. What's the use in doing right if they get rewarded? Everything they plan succeeds. They prosper. Verse 7, they even make plans against those who are living rightly. Verse 12, they borrow and don't pay back. Verse 21, they even use their power to cast down the afflicted and needy, and even in some cases try to kill those in good conduct. Verse 14 and 32 of this psalm. There's plenty of reasons to get upset. I'm getting upset talking about it. So it's, it's obvious why we would tend to be angry over such things. Have you noticed this inner human struggle is well known? There are those who use this temptation to fret over evildoers for financial gain. Here's a few examples that I actually heard just in the last 10 days when I was tuned into this sort of thing. You've got to tune in after the break. What you will hear will make your blood boil. What's coming up next will really get you roiled. Then they have a station break. You've got to hear the next soundbite after the break. It'll make you frosted. And then, wait till you hear this. You'll be outraged. You're going to be livid. We uh, get all tantalized, and we have to tune in so we can get mad. Evidently, it's a human necessity. So, and, and why would someone be envious over a wrongdoer? Because... Obviously, again, they get what we want. They get happiness. They get ahead in everything. They get rich. People like them. Everything they touch turns to gold. And we can relate to this. We hear about what's happening in our world. We see people gaining wealth through wrong practices. We get this sort of indignation, which can boil over into envy, grief, jealousy, anger. God's precept in this psalm don't do it. Don't let that happen to you. 
God gives reasons for his children. The first reason is given right in verse 2. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So don't get angry about this because, because of their end. They'll be judged. They'll have to sit down at a banquet of consequences someday, and it won't be pleasant. The time of this seeming pleasure and success won't last long. According to this psalm alone, it says they will be cut off, be no more. Their violent and evil plans will spring back on them. Their power will be taken away. Their bows will be broken. Their arms will be broken. They'll perish, vanish like smoke, cursed, and their descendants will be cut off. So there's no reason to get worry about them. God has everything under control. And if there's any evil in this world to be dealt with, leave it to the king because he'll do the right thing. Most of what the preacher does up here Sunday by Sunday or in any church where the pulpit is handled properly is much of what the preacher does is to remind us of what we already know and what we already believe. And every time we get, let our anger rise to a point where we want to take the matter of payback up ourselves, we're forgetting three things. Who we are, who he is, and the future. We're forgetting who we are. We're sinners. We're sinners. We are only in a position of God's people by undeserved mercy. Keep in mind now that this, the evildoer and the wicked, these terms used over and over and over and over in the Psalms, refer to human beings. They're people. They're made in God's image. And they're acting, yes, in disregard towards an utter rebellion against the laws of God, the good purposes of God, and the person of God. These things are happening all the time. This is the world we live in. Many of these perpetrators of evil and wrong may yet be saved, like, like David was, like Saul was, the Apostle Paul, and like I was, and like you were. We also are forgetting who he is. He's the Prince of Peace. He suffered, went to the cross for you, and he's the judge of all Nothing escapes his notice. He promises to act at the appropriate time. We're also, when we get angry and want to take things into our own hands, we're forgetting the future. We're forgetting about tomorrow. Our destiny is good. As for the others, God will do the right thing because he's the great judge, the great king, and the perfect judge. Consider the ways Jesus handled injustice and wickedness. We read, for example, there's so many examples, but in 1 Peter 2.23, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting and kept entrusting and kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Jesus, uh, something very interesting we can learn about Jesus' point of view on this subject of Psalm 37 from when he was standing before Pilate. Pilate threatened him, flashed his punishment badge. He said, I can do whatever I want. Don't you know I can have you killed? Hey, I'm the big man here. And Jesus answered and said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Very interesting two-part answer. The first part of Jesus' answer indicates that God is in charge of Pilate. He gave him his little job to do, and he's allowing him to continue in this petty office right up to that moment. The second part is more interesting for our Psalm 37. Jesus acknowledges that it is the sin of other wicked men against him that put him in the difficult position. 
But even that, he submits to the Father for the Father to work out his purposes in the life of Jesus for ultimate good. I heard a story in the 70s about the gang violence in New York City that one gang member put a gun to the head of another, said, I'm going to kill you. So what he didn't know or even care about, the, uh, the victim there, he had recently become a believer, got introduced to Jesus Christ. He knew a little bit of his Bible, and he was much bolder than people like me. And he reportedly said, you cannot kill me unless your father gets permission from my father. He apparently lived to tell about it. I think it's in a book by David Wilkerson. So don't forget who he is, who your father is. And how long will the wicked be allowed to go on like this? The psalm says not long. It's like the cycle of grass or green plants. They may be thriving today, but not for long. Here's one way to help us put things in perspective in this matter about how long will evil men be allowed to be perpetrators of bad things and succeed. One way God has built in limits to this, the limit an evil person can do is to limit their lifespan. We don't think about it that way often, but God put up with a lot of, you know, a lot of bad things from mankind, right, back then. And he destroyed the whole world with a flood and left eight people alive. And he said, when they came off the ark, it's recorded in Genesis 6.30, the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Keep in mind, people used to live to be 600 years old, seven, eight, 900 years old. God said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. His days shall be 120 years. By the time we get to about 900 BC or so, lifespan is shortened, everything's kind of winding down. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says, as for our days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. And they end with a groan. So there it is, God shortens the life to between 80 and 120 years. A person is not usually in their best physical and mental capacity at the very end of their lives, even if they want to do wrong. So we can be thankful in some ways that God shortens the life of people. They don't live to be six to 900 years old anymore. Can you imagine the evil? We see evil a dictator can do in his 40 years of power. Can you imagine if he lived for 600 years? What about the neighbor, that neighbor, that, or, or that, that, that in-law or that family member? They could live for 700 years. That'd be hard to deal with. But we gotta take the long view. If you see an evil person perpetrating harm and prospering, just ask yourself, you know, give it to the Lord, ask yourself, where will they be in 65 years? Or where will they be in 10 years? Or maybe shorter? So don't get hot and bothered over your lures because God will take care of them. There's another reason given in this psalm in verse 8 to not react this way. It's because it's very dangerous. Uh, verse 8, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. Giving yourself to these emotions can lead us into evil. We'll want to settle the score ourselves. We'll want to pick up the phone, give that person a piece of our mind. But before you give someone a piece of your mind, uh, consider the words of a Christian man's wife I heard a couple weeks ago just in preparing for this. Be careful, dear, because you know you don't have all that much to spare. Uh, don't worry over the wicked. This is what you're to do instead. Rather than rage against the wicked, the psalmist urges action of another sort. We are directed to act with a series of imperatives. We're gonna look at them very quickly, there are four. We don't wanna be ignorant of the evil around us. 
utterly passive? No, but rather continue steadily by these four positive things we can do. There's four commands given in this psalm accompanied by four promises. I'm just going to focus on the commands. You can delight and read about the promises from God to you later. So they are trust, delight, commit, and rest and wait. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Rest and wait before the Lord. The first one is trust. It's used over 160 times in the Bible. We are implored in Scripture to seek all of our help from the Lord. We're told of the many great things he'll do for us if we trust him. We're told about the the dangers and foolishness of false trusts. And it's not only trust in the Lord, but trust in the Lord and do good. Not go into isolation, get away from it all, shut your doors and don't mingle with the world. And do nothing but a positive response of doing things God's way in the face of the injustice. Romans, like Romans 12, uh, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can pray for those who mistreat you. We can continue to be kind to those who mistreat us through words and actions, give gentle answers back to those who confront us in anger. Trusting in the Lord is not just an important thing that we do, but it's the thing we must, the most important thing we must do. It's the gateway to God's salvation. It's the pathway to every one of his blessings, and we'll need trust in him right up to the finish line when our life is over and we Hopefully all of us cry out, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And trust will be a chorus of praise after that day I just spoke about. There's a coming day in the future that is hinted at in Isaiah 25, verse 9. When death is destroyed, our tears are wiped away forever. Our disgrace is removed at the heavenly banquet. This will be the joyful cry of the saints. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let's rejoice and be glad. So there'll be a chorus of the praise of those who trusted God even then. The Bible warns us about false trust. Sometimes it's easier to understand something if you look at the opposite or the wrong way of doing it. So trust in the Lord, in the Lord, as opposed to trusting in these other things. Job 8 says, uh, 8.14, forgetting God and depending on something else is like trusting a spider's web to hold you up. Here are some of the things in the Bible we're warned not to trust in. People, princes, friend, brother, wife, neighbor, family. Now, not that we should distrust our neighbors, friends, and family in everyday matters, but in today's context, we should not rely upon them to vanquish the injustice and wrong done in our lives every day. The list from the Bible goes on. Uh, We are not to trust in riches, extortion, stolen goods, country leaders, weapons, chariots, horses, bow swords, soldiers, warriors, or horsemen, or a large army. Or we're not to trust in ourself, our beauty and fame, Ezekiel 16, 15, our good deeds, Our own strength, our riches, religion, idols, images, Moses, the law, the temple of the Lord, philosophies, lies, empty arguments, deceptive words, and oppression. All our hope should be in Jesus. All our hope. Jesus said in 14.1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. 
trust also in me. So what is God like? Well, we don't know all about God, but we know he loves when people trust in him. We know that from the word he gave us. He was pleased for this reason with Noah, Daniel, and Job, for example. Consider how far these three men trusted the Lord. Noah trusted the Lord. He acted. He worked on a gigantic carpentry project for years and years that the whole world mocked. Daniel trusted in God and spoke to him in prayer, even though it would cost him everything. Job, special case, he was pushed to the utter limit of his religion. He lost everything he had, his family, his money, his health. Then he experienced the humiliation of great pain and all sorts of other sufferings. And then the peer and cultural and household pressures to deny his integrity and deny his God. He did not understand from the book of Job, we read, he didn't understand what was happening. He was at the end of his rope, that is clear. But he refused to waver from his trust in the Lord. And it got so bad with Job, he cried out, though he slay me, I will trust him. Because he reckoned God could raise the dead and do anything he wants. So we don't understand everything down here, but we can trust in the one who does. In the context of Psalm 37, trusting and relying on God, in this case, to take care of the mess of wrongdoing in this world and not helping him with the angry feelings or the punishment. It's not our job. Leave it to him. Consider Jesus when he was opposed by his enemies. He Jesus, uh, singularly, uh, actually, had the power at all times to humiliate and crush and annihilate his enemies at every moment of his life. So he's got that power right in his pocket, in his fingers. And we know that because Matthew 26, 53, he pretty much said so. When somebody pushed him over the edge and had some misunderstandings, you can read about it. He said, don't you think I can call 12,000 angels right now? Destroy the whole world. But he, instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Second instruction, delight yourself in the Lord. This is difficult. How do you delight yourself in the Lord? Well, one way is to consider what God likes. What does he delight in? And I'll delight in the same things and go along his way. Jeremiah 9.24 says, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Bible tells us God delights in mercy, faithfulness, forgiveness, kindness, love, goodness. In Romans 14, Paul's giving instructions to a church. They're discussing super important matters in this church. At the time, the big matters of the Christian walk, such as eating and preparing meat and vegetables and special holidays and when to show up and should you not show up and types of food to prepare and how to prepare them and what to serve and eat. And Paul rebukes them with this truth. He says the kingdom of God, in Romans 14, 7, the Christian life is not eating and drinking and beards and clothing and trappings, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Philippians 4, 8 instructs us to dwell on the things that are true, honorable, right, pure, and lovely. Think about these things when you talk about Talk about the news also. You might talk about bad news, but talk about the news that is good, excellent, and praiseworthy. 
Delighting yourself in God would include, I think, delighting yourself in what he loves, his people. Being involved in the lives of other followers of Jesus. Delighting yourself in his word. To delight yourself in getting to know what he said and what it means for you. In prayer, communing with him, talking to him, asking him things, confessing things, listening to him, praising, expressing audibly what God has done for you, and serving those in need through all kinds of good, whatever God has equipped you with to do in good works. The third imperative, commit your way to the Lord. Literally, this says, roll on Jehovah your way. Whatever your way is, roll it on him. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He will do it. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Whatever your way is, what you do, your job, your plans, your projects, your vacation, how you live every day, give it over to, commit it to, roll it onto the Lord. Roll it onto the Lord. I heard it put this way. If you can't pray about it or praise about it, leave it alone. And the fourth command, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Rest means to stop and be quiet. That's what this word means. Sometimes the best course of action in the face of a difficulty and injustice is for us to stop. Just tell God all about it. Cast it all on him and wait. This fourth promise, uh, those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. So he's got wonderful and lasting plans for us. Trust him, he'll do right. No one who trusts in the Lord will be put to shame. You can join in the chorus someday. We trusted him and he came through. It's interesting in closing, I want to mention these four commands are so uh, applicable to so many other areas of life, to sharing the gospel and other areas, but consider how these four commands Trust, delight, commit, and rest are analogous to the four stages of our Christian walk. First, trust. No one can come to him without faith. You have to be born again. From there, the Lord delights our hearts with answered prayer, the sweetness of fellowship with him, knowing his word, the blessings of freedom from old sins, and the wonders of sonship. Then there comes a time in our walk with God that requires harder decisions, more fortitude. There's circumstances that are complicated and they stretch our faith and they require us to just commit our ways and plans to him. And we become less self-oriented and more him-oriented. And there are times that rather than understanding and even knowing what's, what all is going on around us, we're left with the command to be still and wait. Don't worry, I'm in control. Don't be angry at all the injustice. Trust me. And we quiet our hearts before him and grow closer still. The summary, the righteous need not to be vexed by the prosperity of the wicked for it's short-lived and their destiny is undesirable. The last verse of this psalm is a beautiful uh, promise tying it all together. It's sort of the conclusion. The Lord helps, delivers, and saves everyone who takes refuge in him. Lord, we confess uh, in prayer that we have become upset and envious over the wrongdoing of others. We have not trusted you as we ought, 
we have also not delighted ourselves in you as we should, and we've not fully committed our ways to you. And many times, Lord, we've failed to be quiet and wait for your outcome. We thank you for your mercy towards our weaknesses through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we prepare our hearts for the communion table, we do acknowledge the price paid in your body and through your shed blood to call us to yourself and wash us. And I do pray, Lord, that help each of us throughout this week to trust, delight, commit, and rest in you. Amen. it's December 1st. Let nothing steal your joy. May it not be stolen before you hit your cars. There's a lot that's going to happen today. There's a lot that's going to happen this month. May, may we find joy in the pending snowstorm. May we find joy in the busy season, even in the shopping for God's great and awesome provision. And, and let us remember that it was joy that was set before Jesus that allowed him, that carried him to endure the cross. That's why we say, hallelujah, what a savior. God bless you.